they're against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves, and they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, On him who they have pierced, they shall mourn for him, as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him, as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad-Raman in the plain of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn, each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shemites by itself and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each by itself and their wives by themselves. Chapter 13. On that day, there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. And if anyone again prophesies, his father and mother who bore him will say to him, you shall not live for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive, but he will say, I am no prophet. I am a worker of the soil, for a man sold me in my youth. And if one asks him, what are these wounds on your back? He will say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. Thank you, Megan. That's uh, all, of, all of Megan's required reading quotient for the week. She just accomplished it right there. So, um, good stuff. 
good scripture. Good morning. Good to see you guys. Um, thankful we get a chance to look again at Zechariah and at all that God says here. Um, as we do that, I just want to reinforce a couple notes from what Eric Moore was presenting a minute ago. The money to the beans, like we're proposing, hey, let's actually start supporting them. Like if, for those who don't recall, uh, they are co-laborers with our other partners. Uh, and so there's a really good opportunity there to be helping to impact in the same area as we already are providing an impact. Uh, and we just really felt in it with them and feel it'd be a good thing to start in that. They don't have huge needs right now because they've already got their next two years covered and that's all they have uh, coverage for anyway in terms of like visa from the country. So we figured we'd start with something just as a means of partnering with them and I'm sure they'll find good ways to be able to use a little bit of extra funding anyway uh, with the daily life of, of opportunities they have. Um, but kind of being able to bind together with them in that regard. Uh, that was one thing. I feel like there was one other. Oh, yeah, yeah, just like missions in general. I think we mentioned this last year, but worth reinforcing. Our goal is to have missions spend uh, be at least 10% of our total budget. And so we're, I think it's currently like 10 and a half or 11. Uh, so, so right on track with that, which is cool. So anyway, let's pray together as we, uh, as we look to Zechariah. God, thank you for uh, saving us and providing for us and giving us opportunity to serve you and opportunity to know others who are serving you and just all the work that you're doing that we can see, that we can observe if, if we are willing to have eyes to see it. And I pray that you would give us those eyes, that we would not be uh, caught seeing our own ideas and just our own little worlds, but we would see the greatness of what you're doing. pray that you also would give us uh, clear eyes to see ourselves rightly, um, that we would be revived, that we would be brought to a greater level of, uh, of commitment to you and living in your likeness. pray that as we look at Zechariah today, Holy Spirit, that you'd be changing us, that you'd be speaking to us, that is... I say human words, you would take these and you would make them uh, refined and the words of God speaking to human hearts as you are speaking. In Jesus' name, amen. So Zechariah 12 and 13, two chapters, two chapters that are very much speaking on the same theme together uh, of God's work that is to come. So what do you think of when you think of revival? If anything comes to mind, feel free to shout it out. But there's your initial question. What's revival like? We've heard tales. We've read stories. Some people are kind of self-proclaimed revival historians. They read about all the various revivals of works God done throughout history, and they can tell you about all of it, you know, from, from the days of Jonathan Edwards and... Uh, Whitfield over in England, to the days of the Haystack revivals in LA, to various other things that we've given terms to and other things that have been hidden and no one knew about them and all of this. But the, the work of God, what do we think of? I feel like often we think of a lot of happy things. Joy, rejoicing in the Lord, singing, praying constantly, reading my Bible all day, wanting to do nothing but that um, is often, at least for me mentally, the concept. Revival, it means that's all we're doing. And part of what is interesting as 
looking at Zacharias, he wants us to see a much bigger picture than that as he presents really what does revival look like when God comes to rescue and save and deliver in chapter 12 and 13 as you look at this. And as Megan was just reading, you might have picked up on some of it. There's this progress from like a physical deliverance to a, uh, a moral purification and all of this going on. And it's not just happy in songs and singing all day and reading scripture all day and that sort of thing. There is also a, a beautiful sort of pain involved. Um, thus the title of this sermon that I gave it was Painful, Glorious Revival. And one of the things I was thinking about a fair bit this week was the concept of mirrors. Mirrors, especially in story, uh, have taken on a very regular symbolic use. You could call it archetypical for those who like the term archetype, a common theme that's used throughout writing or story throughout the ages. Mirrors, whether we're talking about mirror, mirror on the wall or the mirror of Erised in Harry Potter or the mirror that uh, was looked into by the ancient Greek gods, uh, or not God, but one of those dudes, and he's like staring at his own face all the time, Narcissus, right? Because he loved the look of his own face. Mirrors have this role throughout story that is self-reflective, is maybe reflecting something else that you truly desire, that you won't admit you'll desire, all these things. Mirrors are a place of honesty, if you will have it, which also means mirrors are often a place of fear. Mirror, mirror on the wall, who is the fairest of them all, says Snow White's uh, you know, queen. And the mirror is supposed to say you every time. And if the mirror doesn't say you, there's a problem. And you realize when the mirror doesn't say you and the queen reacts with wrath, that really she wasn't just wondering. <laughs> She's wanting to hear a very specific answer. Part of the thing is, I think, the, we see clearly often that the Bible itself is also a mirror for us. And it also is a scary experience at times, seeing ourselves honestly, seeing what's really going on in our hearts if we are willing to have it and admit it. Seeing that when we say mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the most spiritual one of all, that the Bible's not actually interested in saying, you are, and finding that. So, just initial thought in that way, what does it really look like to engage in revival that God brings, this painful, glorious experience? And what I want to encourage us all to do is embrace the painful glory of revived spirituality. That we want revival. We pray for revival. We ask for revival. And that doesn't just mean, God, please make the laws of our land conform to the Bible. That's actually literally the almost the opposite of what real revival is. <laughs> real revival is God working in human hearts. It's not a political change. It's not a comfort change. It's not monetary. It's not anything. Real revival is God's work in human hearts, and that is often painful and glorious at the same time. So let's embrace that, the painful glory of revived spirituality. So the first section that we see, chapter 12, verse 1 through 6, through revival, the Lord restores strength. And this is a section that's really very tangible, physical, it's saying God's going to bring physical restoration. He starts in verse 1 by saying, thus says the Lord, but not just the Lord. Now, it's interesting because oftentimes in prophecy it says, thus says the Lord, or the Lord says this, or the Lord gave me this message, or whatever. This time, thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. 
I made everything, I made the rock you're living on, and I made you, says God. This is the one who is speaking, the creator of all, the one who knows it all, who sustains it all, who maintains it all. So then when he goes on to say what he's going to say, he's saying that as the preeminent authority of all existence. I made this stuff, I could unmake it in a moment. What I say is true. He's taking on, I mean, it's, he could take on many, many different claims to authority, right? God could. But he's taking on this major claim as the creator, which is also a key way that people have known God since the beginning, is as creator and as one. There is one God who is creator. That's what Israel had known ever since God first revealed himself. So this is the same God that Zechariah is speaking from, who has been their God throughout history. This is the same God who made the world. So when he says, behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples, he means it. He can do whatever he wants. He has made the universe, and he sustains you. He can certainly do whatever else he's claiming. So I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. So the, the, there's going to be a siege against my people, but, verse 3, on that day I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. You ever done that? Ever tried to lift something so large that you hurt yourself? Another way of asking that is, are you above the age of 33? <laughs> <laughs> when I was third grade, I think, second grade, I lived in Michigan, which was an awesome state to grow up in. We had lots of snow, and we were out on the schoolyard, recess, and kids are mean sometimes, um, and we were rolling snowballs. Now, I don't mean like little ones. I mean, you start rolling it on the ground, and when you have a foot of snow, and if you have a little bit of moisture in the air, that snow rolls up and becomes a huge snowball. Very quickly, we call it the snowball effect for a reason, it becomes so large that you can't roll it by yourself. And then you have two, three people pushing it. So if I had multiple classmates, we're all pushing this thing. And my bully friend decided it would be funny to suggest that I should push it by myself. And I was dumb enough not to have the confidence to just say, no, no, like, why? <laughs> you guys can't even push it with all four of you. Why would you think it's funny that I can't? So I tried pushing it, and I failed, and they all made fun of me. It's a great scarring story from my past. But here's the, the reality. That wasn't even a rock. It was a stone. Uh, sorry, <laughs> it was a snowball. It was not a rock. It was not a stone. It was a snowball. That was so heavy you couldn't move it. I didn't injure myself, thankfully, except for perhaps my, my pride or emotional spirits when they all made fun of me. God's saying, I'm going to turn Jerusalem into a heavy stone. All who lift it will hurt themselves. Like you try to lift this thing and you're pulling so hard that you just throw your back out instead. So he's saying symbolically about those who would try to attack and remove Jerusalem at that point. Now he says, on that day doesn't mean that every single time, at any time in history, when someone tries to lift Jerusalem, so to speak, that it's a heavy stone they can't lift without hurting themselves. It means when that day comes that he's speaking of. On that day, verse 4, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness, but of the peoples, or for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. He will not do this willy-nilly. Strike every horse, who cares? I'll keep my eyes open. I know which ones I'm hitting and which ones I'm not hitting for the sake of Judah. God is not just rash, judgmental. He knows 
what he's doing and why. The clans of Judah shall say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. On that day I'll make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood. Gain the strength from the, from the fuel, that sort of thing, a blazing pot. Or like a flaming torch among sheaves. Fuel and flaming, like easy to keep it going. They will be strong. They will devour to the right and the left. So we've got two main things here. God's saying, I'm going to defensively make them like a stone you can't lift, and I'm offensively going to make them like a blazing pot or a flaming torch. They will devour to the right and the left. The strength, the power that God will give to his people on that day for physical strength and prosperity. But he does this when the time is right. And it's, we have to realize when, when God is not acting, it seems to us, he's actually acting. He's intentional about exactly what he's doing. This is an active inaction. He is biding his time and waiting on purpose. You think of those times with a friend or a family member or a child or a coworker when you're like, you know, I used to step in, but I need to wait and see how this plays out for a minute. Maybe it's your children are fighting or your friends are bickering or your, your friend who you're counseling through a hard scenario and you've given them advice and you need to just wait and see how they handle this one or whatever it might be but you're intentionally saying, I'm not going to intervene right now. You're intentionally stepping back, intentionally letting it play out for a minute. Intentionally letting the kids fight for a few minutes to see if they can work it out, to see if they can demonstrate some maturity before you then come in and separate them to their separate corners. Ring the, ring the bell before round three starts, right? There's a, there's a very precise and timed element to that. You're not, you're not in a state of apathy or lethargy, so you're not acting. You're not lazy, so you're not acting. You're intentionally not acting. It's an active inaction. And this is what, what God displays here. He's not saying, oh, shoot, <laughs> those people. I need to do something about that. No, he's saying, look, I'm telling you ahead of time. There's a day coming that I will intervene, which means every day before that is a day that he's choosing not to. He knows he's not going to be, for whatever time period, for a reason. Very active in action. He's delegating and waiting. But he's going to, and he restores strength in revival. It, it, slight side note, because it's particularly relevant right now, this is also pertinent to how we view the Middle East even today. The mere fact that a nation called Israel exists doesn't thereby make the nation of Israel right with God. Being right with God is about the heart of following God and being his disciples. So we think about how do we approach Israel this moment and the Palestine this moment, neither one of them as a whole is pursuing Jesus. No one in Israel as a whole is pursuing Jesus any more than people in the U.S. or wherever else. And so what we need to pray for is true revival because when God says, and we'll see it in the rest of this text, when he's reviving his people, his Israel, and whether you're talking literal uh, political Israel or you're talking spiritual lineage Israel, when he's bringing revival, it encompasses the whole person. 1945 was not a revival. 1945 was a resuscitation of a political state. So as we think about that and pray toward that, we absolutely want peace. We want like, to stop the fighting, but we also want that God would bring real revival, holistic, heart-level revival and change. Okay, through, through revival, the Lord delivers, point two. As we go to verse seven through nine, 
So he's, he's given them strength. And now it says, he will give salvation to the tents of Judah first. The glory of the house of David and Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. And he's, he's saying as he does this, I don't know if you caught this as Megan was reading it, but in verse 8, the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David. Okay, who's David? Good old King David. What was David? The man after God's own heart who totally screwed up a whole bunch and still repented and came back to God, right? Who was David? The powerful king leader who led the people in conquest. The writer of Psalms. This noble man that people would look up to as the victor of history. Whether, pick whatever hero you want, whether your hero is George Washington or Joe Biden or someone in between for this nation, David was higher in the people of Israel's eyes as a political leader. Because it wasn't just, oh, hey, you know, the Revolutionary War and a bunch of people with muskets stood around and fired very inaccurately at the British. This was Israel led by this one guy, David who had people behind him and his mighty men, but he hid in caves and he ran from Saul and he prayed and he loved God and he's, he's the epitome in many ways of God's leader, the man after God's own heart, king. And again, who had very strong failings, <laughs> but which God redeemed him through. So it says the feeblest among them, the weakest person among God's people on that day is gonna be like David. And the house of David well, they're going to be like God. Like, there's upgrades here across the board. When God brings revival, he is bringing his people to a higher status of living in his image. And he's saying, this is not just a physical deliverance. This is, this is a very thorough deliverance. You're going to be like David. David will be like God. You're, you're all going to be strong in the Lord. You're all going to be in a much better place. And verse 9, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. So again, just directly tied into those first verses that he is rescuing in a very tangible way and he's providing and he's giving what is needed. The thing that's interesting about this is there's nothing so far in this chapter that demonstrates any change on the part of the people of God. <laughs> he's rescuing them and they don't deserve it at all. It's not like, on that day, you're going to get it and then I'll step in in response to you getting it. And, you know, then all will be happy. No, it's like, yeah, you guys still don't know what you're talking about, but at some point here, I'm going to come rescue you anyway. Like, there's going to come a time when I've let things happen, and then I'm going to come in and, and bring rescue. It's not that you're going to do good enough, or you're going to get the answers right enough, or you're going to earn enough things that, you know, now I make it. You're not going to get enough credits or extra lives or whatever in, the, in a video game type scenario that now you get the bonus power-up extra level where God comes in. Like, that's not... It's not what's happening here. You're still in a status where it doesn't even say they're going to repent yet. It's going to say, I'm going to come and redeem them or rescue them. When we think of whether it's sports teams or political leaders or whoever, the greatest leaders that we see or the most effective leaders or the most effective people motivators whichever terms you want to give, depending on whether you're thinking of like actually great people or horrible people who still are effective, they give the people under them boldness and a power that they otherwise would not have. A, a great sports player who leads the team and somehow the team as a whole plays better. Somehow the team as a whole has new skills they didn't have yesterday because now this guy's here or this, this woman's here, or whoever, depending on what sport you're playing, the leader 
upgrades the people, in a sense. When you have a great leader of a company, same thing, like the idea of a visionary that people are following, they get behind it, they get energy from it, and God's like, I'm coming, and I'm restoring you, and the feebles to be like David, and the house of David will be like God, and like, we're all going to proceed forward in joy. So he's going to rescue those who don't deserve it and give his people boldness. But then verse 10 to 12, as he comes, as he rescues the people, as he gives them the strength, through revival, the Lord reveals sin. God appears on the scene. He's setting things right. You would, you would almost expect the next scene to be, and then they will rejoice, and they will sing songs of gladness, and there will be feasting, and there will be you know, building of houses, and playing in the fields, and the children will dance with the snakes, and like all this kind of stuff that is sounding exciting and peaceful and that sort of thing. And instead, I'll pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. You know those times, parents, where you, something happens and you're certain you know what happened? It was that kid. It was, it was that son or daughter who did it. You know, it was definitely them. You can't find the keys and it's because they stole them again because they love playing with them and they hid them somewhere we have no idea. Or that check that you really needed, can't find it, and then you find little shards of paper sitting somewhere that look remarkably like the check. And so you lash out at your child and you yell at them about how you, they do this all the time and I've had it up to here with your behavior and this is ridiculous. And then you turn around the corner and you discover there are the keys or the check right where you left them so that you wouldn't forget where you put them. And you have that moment like, what have I done? <laughs> I'm such an idiot. <laughs> I hope I haven't scarred you for life. <laughs> I, we have these, these moments of just utter failure at times where we don't realize it till after the fact and pride goes before a fall. Then God says, yeah, yeah, here you go. You want to see reality smack you in the face? <laughs> Overreactive. <laughs> the people going as God appears and their thought is, what have we done? Looking on him who they have pierced. They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. John references this in John 19 when Jesus is dying on the cross. He says they will look on him whom they've pierced. He's like, this is very on the nose, guys. They pierced him and they're looking on him right now in this story on the cross. But then John also references it in Revelation 1. Revelation 1, not Jude. Revelation 1, starting halfway through verse 5, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. See, the sight of, of God come to redeem should be and could be a glorious thing. But for those who've rebelled and turned away and spat on him and crucified him, and whether physically, literally, or whether by our daily rebellion for those who are not believers, 
seeing God come, seeing Jesus come in the clouds is a reason for mourning. It's a reason for weeping over sin. If, if they are so graced that the Lord would give them the mercy to see it. Paul also talks about in 2 Corinthians, he's writing to the Corinthians and he, he refers to his previous letter that was a hard letter, which most likely is 1 Corinthians, where he corrected them very strictly about the allowances they had for sin, where they were like boasting that they had a man in their, in their church who was committing gross immorality. And they're like, yeah, we're tolerant, we believe in grace, or whatever they were saying. And Paul's like, you morons, you're letting sin just be part of your fellowship and you don't care. So in, in 2 Corinthians, he says basically, I'm sorry that I had to hurt you, though I'm glad that I hurt you because it was a hurt that led to repentance. And this is exactly what we see in Zechariah and when God's saying, I'm going to return and you're going to weep over your sin. You're going to weep over the fact that you've betrayed me, the one who you've pierced. There is a very good element to the pain of seeing our sin face to face and being able to recognize this is wrong and I can turn from it. And it's there. So through revival, the Lord purifies. As we start uh, from the end of chapter 12, verse 13, through the first chunk of 13 up to verse 6. It talks about setting the, the families to the side. It talks about, on that day, I'm going to cut off the name of the idols from the land. So these idols aren't going to be mentioned anymore. I'm going to remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. And then there's these two dramatic pictures. If anyone then prophesies, his parents are going to be like, well, you false prophet, and his parents, the ones who gave him life, the ones who humanly gave him life, will be the ones leading the charge to say, you're being a false prophet, you have to die. They're not going to defend him, they're not going to say, oh no, he's a good kid, he's just misguided. On that day, when God's bringing real revival, people are going to care about purity. When you think of things like this in the New Testament, Jesus says, if your eye offends, you pluck it out. If your hand affects you, you cut it off. Right? These very severe-sounding statements. Severe-sounding statement here. Like this concept, though, that we're going to care that much about holiness, that we're going to rid ourselves of what is impure. But then the second one. So they're saying, you know, you have to, you're not going to live because you, you lie. But then verse 4. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He'll put on a heavy cloak or cover himself. So these guys that were formerly masquerading as false prophets, people are saying, oh yeah, give us a, give us a word. And now their word is, verse five, I am no prophet. I'm a worker of the soil for a man sold me in my youth. But, but what are those wounds on your back, they say. The wounds I received in the house of my friends. Like, so either he's like, hey, give me some wounds so I can, be a, you know, I can convince the people that I'm a prophet and they like, hit him on purpose or maybe he's just goofing off with his friends and they hurt him. Who knows the exact history but he's saying, guys, I'm, I'm not what you thought. I'm not perfect like you thought. I'm not. The, the mirror, mirror on the wall says I'm not the fairest of them all. So there is both a strong desire for holiness, no matter what it takes, and also a strong vulnerability about who am I really. When revival comes, people get vulnerable. People get real. And I think we need to realize and really take it to heart that if we are people of the gospel, it means we have to be vulnerable people. 
We are not those who put on plastic faces and pretend, or we shouldn't be, like everything's fine when it's not. We shouldn't be those who stand in judgment over others for being so awful without looking to ourselves and seeing our own sin. As Jesus said, take the plank out of your own eye before removing the speck from your brothers, right? We shouldn't be those people who are known as all high and mighty above society. We should be those who are known as the most vulnerable, the most, not, not just willing, but eager to look into the mirror of honesty and to look at who are we really because we know that when we see that, God can help us change, God can help us grow. And that when we ignore it, we're just maintaining a facade that is, it's a house of cards, it's plastic being thrown into the fire, whatever you want to think of, it is very non-permanent. It's like getting a, a toy from Dollar General and downgrading that. That'd be the status of the false image that we portray. The work of God brings vulnerability but it also hurts. There's a, there's a great story that C.S. Lewis, uh, a great segment of a story, a great scene, he wrote in The Voyage of Dawn Treader. For those who don't know, C.S. Lewis wrote a lot of allegory stories. Chronicles of Narnia, there are several different books. One of them is called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And in the course of that, there's a character named Edmund, uh, and he has turned into a dragon by greed and by being a punk, basically. Uh, yep, not Edmund Eustace. Thank you, Kristen. <laughs> Eustace, not Edmund. Eustace is their cousin. Anyway, Eustace has turned into a dragon. And he realizes what's happening. He actually wants to get out of this. But try as he might, he can't rip his own scales off. He can't get out of his dragon-like form. And at one point, he finds himself on the beach with Aslan there. Aslan, who is meant to image Christ in the stories of Chronicles of Narnia. And Aslan rips the scales off of him. Aslan transforms him. And it's beautiful, but it's painful. And he even, I, I forgot to get the quote, but he has Eustace talking about it later to them and talking about how it hurt, but it was a good kind of hurt or that sort of thing. Like the, the removal of our sin, the removal of our ugliness, it hurts. Let's just admit it. We love our sin a lot <laughs> at various times. It's not a fun thing to confront the ugliness of our past or confront the ugliness of our present. It's not a fun thing to admit who we really are, to be vulnerable about our weaknesses. But it's a really good and healthy thing that God does in the midst of revival. So that leads us to the end of this, verse 7 through 9, that reflects on what's been said in, in somewhat of a song form. And basically insists that revival is a painful and glorious work of God. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Well, hang on a second. We just got done reading that God was going to deliver, he was going to defend, he's going to redeem, he's going to bring awareness of sin, he's going to purify. And now the first thing we get is, awake, O sword, against my shepherd? God's plan is a little different than we might think. Awake against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. They will say, or I will say they are my people, and they will say the Lord is my God. So by the end of it, we've got God's people testifying of his goodness, that he is their God, and God saying these are my people. But along the way, we've lost two-thirds of them. Along the way, God has said, strike the shepherd that they'll be scattered. This is directly referenced by Jesus uh, in both Matthew and Mark. 
Mark 26, or sorry, Mark 14, 26 through 28. This is during the Last Supper. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And then Peter denies it, says, I would never go away, and Jesus says, You'll deny me three times. And unfortunately, that story ends with Peter doing exactly that, right? But Jesus here is using this whole point from Zechariah, where God's saying, I'm going to bring revival, but the way he's going to bring it is not by saying, all of you are great, let's just, all right, you're all rescued. No, he's going to bring hard times. He's going to strike the shepherd. And so, hundreds of years later, here's Jesus being struck. And when, when were the disciples experiencing revival? Was it when everything was good for three and a half years or following Jesus, there's miracles? Spiritual high. We're on the mountaintop with Jesus, literally, and he's giving the speech to the people, right? Like, we're on the Mount of Olives with Jesus. We're doing miracles. Like, everything's exciting. Revival. I'm thrilled. I'm with God. That's not where we get it. Because when it comes time, God says, no, I'm actually going to expose you for who you are right now. I'm striking the shepherd. And you're all going to run away freaked out. Apostles have been with Jesus daily for three and a half years, seeing miracles, seeing him demonstrate that he was God as he's walking on water or calming the storm. Or these other, like, it's not just like, oh yeah, he healed some people. I'm not sure how that happened, but cool. No, he's stopping the storm with a word. They're on the boat and they're freaked out because how did he do that? Right? Like, they're seeing all this over the course of three and a half years. That's not the stuff that brought them to their knees and pre- prepared them for ministry without Jesus. It was when God struck the shepherd and they all scattered and they had to realize, oh shoot, I'm a coward. And I need God's help. <laughs> They're all running. They're all afraid. Even, even when we come to Acts, after Jesus has returned and gone up to heaven, they're still in the upper room, potentially kind of afraid of what the Pharisees might do before God brings his spirit to give them the strength that they truly need. But their revival was not when things were awesome. And I think far too often, culturally, we feel like things are going to look so awesome when God's doing a big work. But it starts with pain. And it starts with seeing our sin. The thing that is reported by many from the stories of revival is not just singing all day and reading the scripture, encouraging one another all the time. Those things are mentioned. But also it's wailing over my sin. People weeping on the floor and begging God to rescue them, though they are so undeserving. It's like Isaiah in Isaiah 6, woe is me. Like he sees a big vision of God. He's not like, yes! He falls on his face. I am unmade. Woe to me, like a curse be upon me. I'm seeing God, I'm going to die. And it's God who sends his angel and comes with the, the flaming coal from the fire and touches it to his lips and purifies him in a sense, symbolically, and says, no, no, you're made clean. And so then when God says, all right, who's going to go for me? Isaiah's like, well, here, here am I, send me, send me. Like, you've rescued me. You didn't, like, you, you took the woe is me and turned it into a purified lips. Yeah, I'll serve, send me, let's do it. That's, that's what we need. When we talk about revival, it, it's, it's funny to me, I, f- I forget if I mentioned this before, but whatever, sorry if I have. The song, Open my, the Eyes of My Heart, Lord, it's cool. I also find it kind of ironic because it's really happy, like, open the eyes of my heart, Lord. I'm like, do you realize what was happening in that scene? <laughs> I say it was not excited. 
If God really like, came right now and opened the eyes of our hearts, like Isaiah, we would all be in sorrow. We would all be weeping. And it'd be really good, ultimately, but it'd be really hard to see him in all of his beauty and to see ourselves in all of our corruption, but then to realize the beauty of what Jesus has done. That we can see him in his beauty and see ourselves in our corruption and still actually have a place at that table. That's what fuels here am I, send me is a recognition of what he's doing. It's not that everything feels so great. Revival is painful and glorious. It is glorious. <laughs> James 4, 5 to 10, when he's talking to like the rich who have beaten people down or, or to others, and he says, weep and mourn over your sin. Like he's calling people like, hey, weep and mourn for your sin. Like this, is, this is a good thing to do. So there's the picture in Zechariah 12 to 13. God bringing this glorious revival. He's rescuing the people. He's bringing hard times that trim off two-thirds of them. He's purifying. He's refining the people. He's throwing his people into the fire that, that the chaff would be burned away and that what is pure would remain. But it is through the fire. It is through the, the pain of being willing to stare ourselves in the mirror, the mirror that is so honest and says, you're not the fairest of them all. The mirror that's so honest, like the mirror of Erised in Harry Potter that shows what you really desire, and maybe it's things you don't want to admit you desire. The mirror that Narcissus was staring in to just stare at himself and it revealed how much of a vainglorious man he was. We use these mirrors symbolically, and I think it, it's interesting how much it aligns with what Scripture's saying. <laughs> it tells us, hey, you need to get a better sense of yourself, and you need to realize you're a sinner, and that God can redeem you. God's goal is your growth, not your comfort. If you thought you were becoming a Christian so that you get a more comfortable life, and if you think, if you think that God's goal for tomorrow is to upgrade your, your existence, give you a better couch, or a car that actually has heated seats, or you know, a yacht, or whatever else, you've bought a false gospel. God's goal, the true God's goal, is your growth, is your holiness. There's even something that's, that's said in Thessalonians. This is God's will for you, your holiness. What that means is that really good things can hurt. And comfort is not a sign, not the proof of spirituality. It doesn't mean that if you are comfortable, therefore you're unspiritual. But it means that you shouldn't go, hey, things are going well. I must be following God well. That's not the test. The test is, are we actually looking at our hearts, at our own sin, and pursuing God to grow through our sin? The test is, am I looking at myself and my own sin, not just you and your own sin, or not just those bad people out there and their sin? Am I being revived daily by diving in, by being honest with myself and with God, by seeking to grow in the hard things, by seeking to grow in, in the sin and the pain and the trauma and the everything else? Because God wants your growth. So he leads us through hard times. But he's like, the personal trainer at the gym. Your muscles may hurt afterwards, but it's for a good thing. It's for growth. Weightlifting, it's, it's not inherently fun in a sense. Now, for some it is because they're like, look how much I can bench. But that's not because the process of putting that much weight on you is fun. Your body's strained. Your muscles afterwards complain. But it can be a good thing for the strength of your body. It can also be a thing where your, you know, starts looking like you have muscles popping out of your earlobes and it gets really weird but it can be a very good thing for your body. 
basic weight training, having muscles that are strong enough, all of that, right? But it still hurts. Wake up the next morning, you're like, I can't move. It was leg day yesterday, right? Like, all of that. I used to do that when I was younger. Maybe I will again someday. <laughs> in high school, I, would, like, I lifted weights with the team, and you know, every time after leg day, it was like I'd try to sit down in my chair, and you like, try to lower yourself slowly, and you just collapse into the, into the chair. Math class, oh! your muscles hurt, but it's, it's this good thing, and you're like, yeah, okay, I like that feeling. Why do you like that feeling? Because it means you're growing. Why should we like the feeling of vulnerability or, or pain or the guilt of seeing our sin only because it means we're growing. We shouldn't like, take pride and look, I'm the most vulnerable person around. Let me just tell you all my sin. Like, it's, it's not a prideful thing to be vulnerable. It's a growth thing to be vulnerable. It's still absolutely necessary. So stare your problems in your face. Weep over them and be changed. Like, it's, it's a great thing. It really is. There's a, a really great British show that I used to see years ago called Keeping Up Appearances. Um, any of you who have seen it are already chuckling inside. But there's a woman, she's like the main character of the show, basically, and her last name is spelled B-U-C-K-E-T. Anyone tell me what B-U-C-K-E-T is pronounced as? See, you said bucket, but what you don't know is it's bouquet. One of the most commonly stated phrases in that show is her correcting the delivery man. He's like, I got a delivery for uh, Mrs. Bucket. It's bouquet. The whole show is this you know, mashup of British sensibilities and whatever and great British dry humor. And it's, it's wonderful. But this whole point that she's keeping up appearances, trying to make things look good, and like, there's various facets of her life that are just a mess. But she's constantly trying to like, shine things up and prove how good she is. And that's, that's the opposite of what we need. And especially in a culture where, whether, whether by North American standards or by North American church standards, and let's be honest enough to admit we have way too many of those at times. So we don't need to look beyond our own halls and our own white evangelical American church circles to have far too many standards that people are trying to live up to that are not directly in Scripture. We're trying to keep up appearances. And, and your pride in trying to do that is stopping God's work in your life. My pride in trying to do that is stopping God's work in my life. When we choose that we're more concerned ultimately about looking good or looking like the good Christian, God's not here to make you look like a good Christian. (laughs) He's here to actually make you a good Christian. And people who are actually good Christians are humble and vulnerable and aware of their sin and seeking to grow, not trying to prove that they've got the good Christian image. It's, It's ironically two very different things. My mom used to mention actually many times, her her father was a pastor. Um, and one of the things I remember her talking about several times was how she would sometimes go into, like find him in his study in the house or whatever and find him weeping and ask what's the matter and he'd say, I'm just so sinful. And she's like, I don't think you've ever sinned in your life. (laughs) But she's just like observing that the more that he was studying, the more that he was coming to know God, the more he was seeing his own sin in a really healthy way. It wasn't like self-condemning and whatever, but like this recognition, I don't have it all together. I need Jesus and praise Jesus, he did it. Praise Jesus, he redeemed me, provided the way. So maintain a gospel-fueled vulnerability. The the other side of it, the cultural side of it sometimes is, is who cares about you guys, vulnerability. 
Now, there's, a, there's dynamic, like whether it's coming out of the closet type language or other sorts of things, be true to yourself, et cetera, et cetera. At times, people are taking this to the level of, yeah, who cares about you? Who cares about your opinion? None of that matters. I'm just going to be true to me, so here's, here's who I am. That sort of vulnerability is not gospel-fueled vulnerability. Gospel-fueled vulnerability still admits to the same things, but for the purpose of righteousness and growth and holiness. And so at times, it, it actually looks very different because it's not this kind of arrogant forget you. It's, it's more of a Jesus-confident, his opinion matters, and his opinion is the only one that ultimately matters. So like Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, when he's talking to the people in the letter he's writing to them, right? he basically says, it doesn't matter how you judge me. He doesn't mean that in a dismissive way. He follows up to say, I don't even judge myself. The judgment that matters is the Lord's upon me. So like I'm seeking to be faithful and he's going to judge me and you can have whatever judgments you want, I suppose, but they don't actually have weight. What matters is what the Lord's going to judge me with. And we should all have that same feeling in our own lives. What matters is the Lord's judgment upon me. What matters is that Jesus has saved me and that the Lord is going to judge my faithfulness. So this was, I mean, huge for me personally and just my own ability years ago to start talking about the fact like, okay, I dealt with porn or I dealt with whatever was like, yeah, we deal with sin. And if someone wants to think less of me for the fact that I deal with sin, that actually says more about them than it does about me. <laughs> because we need to be able to deal with sin together and grow together. When we pretend like we don't have sin, we actually create an environment that's hostile to growing in holiness, which is sad. So being those who are not plastic, but who are living and loving Jesus and being changed day by day in our vulnerability. Uh, the final thing I want to mention in that regard is just the, the, danger, of, uh, <laughs> the danger of right theology. Uh, what do I mean by this? <laughs> Oftentimes, our knowledge, the things that we know in our heads, as true, the right answers, the academic pursuit to things. Like I know, the, I know that when it, someone says, you know, what do you do to be saved? I can answer from Acts 16 or I can answer from John 3:16 or whatever. Like, yeah, you must believe in Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Or Jesus came, God so loved the world that he gave the, you know, his son. Like, okay, yeah, yeah, I'll say those things. Got the right answer. So I know the right answer on transubstantiation. I know the right answer on all these other huge words that Eric doesn't even want to think of right now. Theological terms, we've got the right answers, we've sorted them out. So often, there's a big danger of that right answer knowledge masking your actual beliefs. I felt this very much, often, like years ago, especially a few years ago, when I was trying to sort out, like, well, okay, what are we doing in life? Like, heading up, eventually led to going to Canada and then coming back from Canada. It's like, if I try to query my own heart, how am I doing? It's so easy. I've been through seminary. It's so easy to answer with the right answers. The right answers, not the correct ones, not the accurate ones to my heart, but the right answers academically. It's so easy. How are you doing? Oh, I mean, the, the, God's sovereign. All right. Okay, well, how does your life show that you're actually believing he's sovereign? So, so be very aware of that danger. We're not just looking, when we're saying, how can I be vulnerable? How can I examine my heart and where am I? It doesn't matter what the right answer is theologically. What matters is where are you right now so that you can grow through that toward the right answer. God is sovereign, but do you believe that? Do you trust that in the midst of your fears or in the midst of your unwillingness to talk about sin or in the midst of your whatever? Do you actually believe that God is sovereign? When you're fretting about the fact that you're uh, delayed in traffic for an hour on a road trip or something, 
Do you believe that God has sovereignly given you this traffic delay to deal with? Can that shape the way you interact with your kids in the back or your spouse or, or with the drivers around you because you're driving alone and you've got road rage or whatever? Or we just say, oh, God's sovereign, God's sovereign, God's sovereign. And, and it doesn't actually truly impact our beliefs. Because when God brings revival, he gives strength and he delivers his people and he brings an awareness of sin and he brings purification. And it's a beautiful thing. It's a painful thing. So let's embrace the painful glory of revival. Let's pray that God would truly give us revival and recognize, yeah, we're praying for some pain. We recognize we're praying for dealing again, perhaps, with things we haven't dealt with for a decade or something, or haven't dealt with maybe since we were kids, or whatever, things we've stuffed, things we haven't wanted to deal with because it hurts too much to deal with it, or anything like that. In order to grow, we need that pain to, to work through it, to grow through it. Just like a doctor's surgery hurts, but it, hurts your, it helps your ACL or it helps your arm, or it helps whatever he's working on. There are things that do bring pain that bring ultimate health. And what God seeks to do in revival is exactly that. He, he roots out the sin from us and brings us to a place of much greater health. So I invite you to step into that. Not, not just pray for revival, do pray for revival, but actively pursue it. Actively pursue the kind of vulnerability and pursuit of God that can lead to it. Because if we're just saying, God, bring revival, bring revival. Oh, but not like that. If we're saying, God, bring revival, but I'm going to maintain my own kind of plastic, pristine, prideful presentation of myself. And bring revival to them. Bring revival to those guys. Bring revival to, to the political parties I disagree with and to the, the other religions and whatever. But don't bring it to my heart. I don't need it. I'm, I'm good, you see. We're not actually praying for revival. So let's be honest enough to put ourselves in a position for revival and yes, may God bring it to the entire land and the entire world. May we see a huge influx of true love of God. But let's pray for it and start with ourselves. God, thank you that you have redeemed us. Thank you that through Jesus we have hope that even though we might fall on our face in your presence and say, woe is me, I'm undone, you point out that you've made the way for our purity, for our purification from sin, for our rescue. Thank you that even though dealing with where we're really at in life is often hard or difficult, you have made the way to heal it all, to redeem it all. Thank you that you are honest enough and bold enough to bring us to the pain of our own sins so that we can be freed of it. Thank you, Jesus, for taking it all on, for taking the curse and the cross, for being the shepherd that was willing to be struck for the good of his people. Thank you that when we see you return, we don't have to be those who weep and wail and mourn with no hope. We, we may still, in light of your beauty, weep, but we can weep as those with joy that know you've redeemed us anyway. And pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give us a gospel-fueled vulnerability to, to know and be known and to see ourselves truly and be changed by you. Help us as fellow sinners to love one another and encourage one another as we struggle against sin together, as we pursue you together, as we seek to minister to a world that needs you together. And we pray that you would bring revival, both in our own hearts, in our own church, in our community, across the land. We can see so many issues all around of ways that 
this world is hurt by sin and the curse, whether it's here in the U.S. or over in the Middle East in the, in the war there or other wars or poverty here and there, mistreatment and oppression all over the place. The scripture is so true, the things that we see, and we long for real revival. It'd be widespread and be huge. We long even more for the day, Jesus, when you will return and make all things right. For now, I pray that you would make us people of revival, a revived people who are actively living for you and seeking to grow through the, the trials you give us to weed out the sin and to make us like Jesus. Help us to praise you now in Jesus' name, amen.